Okay. Um, so I guess just start with that. Can you just say your first and last name? Sure. My name is Sandra Choi. Can you spell Sandra Choi? S-A-N-D-R-A-C-H-O-I. This is Sandra Choi a first-time candidate running for office to represent Queens in the House of Representatives. We're a very small campaign, we're grassroots, uh, and so it, it's just good to know that there's some maybe natural conversations happening about how Yeah, you speak English too. <laughs> I should, because I was born here. I was actually born in Flushing Hospital. Um, oh, really? Grew up yeah. across the street from Elmer's Hospital. Um, I'm running for the first time, uh, running against Graceman. So, okay, send me your information yeah. or email it to me. Yeah. So do you usually vote every every yeah. year? Okay. So yeah. I always vote. Okay. I, I I'm on Twitter. You are. You I'm knocking the hell out of the Republicans. Yeah. You know what's good too now? What's good? The uh, the Lincoln Project. Sandra joins a wave of progressive newcomers hoping to ignite change at the most direct level. A lifelong Queens resident, Sandra is running her campaign on economic and social equality. These issues are close to her heart because they are her lived experiences. A child of immigrants, she grew up working class. She and her brother were raised by her grandmother who lived with Parkinson's disease while her parents worked non-stop to make ends meet. And now she's channeling those experiences to advocate for the most vulnerable in her home borough. Here to talk with us today is Sandra Choi, a Democratic congressional candidate for NY6. Yeah, it is, it is very incredibly difficult. A lot of people told me, don't bother running if you're not going to take corporate PAC money, especially you know, as an Asian American woman, don't, don't bother. <laughs> And, but you know, running without corporate PAC money was really important to this campaign because in our political system, corporate donations are so normalized, we don't understand how absurd it is. Sandra, I am so excited to have you on my podcast and I'm glad we are finally doing this because we had to reschedule a few times. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I've, you know, I followed the podcast and I was really excited to to come on today. Yeah, and we were supposed to meet in person in April, right? And then the lockdown happened and everything changed. You know, yeah, the, the lockdown and this pandemic has changed a lot of things. Uh, but I'm excited to connect with you today. So let's talk about the pandemic. How has quarantine affected your campaign? We've reflected a lot about how our campaign could responsibly adapt to and meet the gravity of this moment. We suspended our field operations alongside many candidates during the signature petitioning period, which is when candidates collect the appropriate number of signatures to appear on the ballot before Governor Cuomo even released the executive order to amend the collection requirement back in uh, late early March. Uh, but it was really important that we prioritize the health and lives of the people in this district because, you know, we experienced and saw a lot of people grieving, struggle with income loss, uh, mounting rent and bill pressure, unable to deal kind of with the mental trauma and grief 
caused by all of this. I mean, we've really, we've really entered new territory and, you know, our world is never going to be the same again. And we wanted to make sure that our campaign, we proceed with the utmost empathy, respect, and uplift the voices of the people in this district as much as possible uh, in this moment. So, you know, one of the things that we did was we released a needs assessment survey throughout the people in this district to ask what their immediate and future needs are going to be. You know, and as part of this outreach, we've consistently released our stories through our social media platforms. So it provides some type of comfort to them that they're being heard and, you know, they're not alone at this moment. So Sandra, when you talk about the district, you're referring to Queens, right? Yep. So, you know, just to introduce myself to your viewers, my name is Sandra Choi, and I'm running to represent Queens's New York Congressional District 6 in the U.S. House of Representatives. So right now, New York Congressional District 6, which represents Central and Eastern Queens, we have a really large need at this moment to make sure that the people in this district are being heard and acknowledged because a lot of the people who are part of our community are immigrants. On We have sizable undocumented population. We have a lot of people struggling with language access. And that all translates into how they're being affected by, by this pandemic and, and this virus. So I was reading this article which talks about how COVID-19 has disproportionately impacted Black and brown communities. And in a way, if you look at the pandemic, it has really exposed weaknesses in our healthcare system, right? Sandra, you are a progressive who, and we will talk about your policies and our platform, but have you seen change in how people are perceiving the debate around healthcare and Medicare for all? Has it changed because of the pandemic? You know, I think people are asking asking the questions of why do these disparities exist? Right now, we, we talk a lot about Elmer's Hospital. It's the only public access hospital that's in central Queens and serves a lot of the constituents here in this district. And, you know, even before this whole pandemic happened, I, you know, I was very visible and vocal about my experience kind of growing up in front of the hospital. My first job was translating for patients and doctors, you know, at 13, volunteering there. And, you know, you see a lot of the people who rely on the services of Elmer's Hospital. They were really dealing with a lot of these inequalities where people weren't able to, to receive the health care that they needed. And it's also, it just kind of falls back to the demographics of this district. You know, a lot of people who need these type of public services um, to meet their health care needs. For me, you know, a big part of this campaign is to advocate for a single-payer health care system so that, you know, every American that lives in our district, including the undocumented population, get coverage. Because we have some of the highest uninsured rates and people who have inadequate health care coverage, you know, in the city and the country. For someone who wants to represent this district, I think they should be really vocal about, you know, why these inequities exist, how it's allowed to persist for this long, and how we can, you know, provide real policy solutions so that everyone has access to health care. Talking about policies, let's break down your policies and issues that you are running on for those who are new to your campaign. Can you break it down for us? Yeah, sure. So some of the largest needs that we have in this district is healthcare, housing, and access to economic opportunity. So, you know, for me and for this campaign, it's really important that we continue and keep advocating for a single-payer 
healthcare system, single payer Medicare for all. And another uh, need that we have to have addressed is the issue of housing. We see a lot of communities and residents, longtime residents being displaced. You know, Queens has the most rent burden population, severely rent burden population in, in the city, which means that more than 50% of their income is devoted towards rent. Uh, and right now, you know, with this pandemic, we're also seeing a lot of people, a lot of voices about how people have no income at this moment and how it's it's really been a source of mental trauma for a lot of people not being able to meet their rent um, and not having housing security at a moment like this. And as an economic development officer, you know, I think we can really leverage a lot of these tools that we have at the federal government to make sure that we address and promote policies that promote kind of housing security for a lot of our residents and also do away with a lot of economic development tools that perpetuate inequality and burden um, and displace our residents as well. Uh, and the kind of final leg of our platform that is access to economic opportunity, you know, we have a lot of sort of neighborhood retail commercial-based businesses here run by immigrant families. And a lot of the tools that we have at the federal level through the SBA, through the U.S. Department of Commerce, aren't tailored towards true small businesses like the businesses our you know, residents rely on to support their families. And so that's another big kind of area issue that our campaign wants to advocate for and reform. So can you talk a little bit about the kind of solutions that your campaign is proposing? A lot of what we've kind of talked about with organizations is looking at specific programs and policies within each federal agency about how we can kind of reform them and champion those that that make sense for this community and do away with programs and tools that perpetuate inequality. So Sandra, all of this seems very personal for you, right? Your parents immigrated from South Korea to Queens and your dad worked at a corner stationery store while your mother worked at a nail salon. And on your website, it says that your family used to move often because you would get priced out of your home, right? Has that shaped the way you view class in America? And in fact, I should be asking you, how do you view class in America? You know, you know, I think race, class, and language privilege determines every person's access to opportunity and to the different worlds that they can navigate and, and benefit from. So, you know, my personal experience is growing up in Queens as part of working class immigrant communities has really shaped my commitment to working in public policy and being a public servant. You know, I noticed that, you know, at a young age, even though there weren't a lot of people that looked like me in government, policy specifically kind of effective and transparent policies can save lives, uplift communities and modernize outdated institutions. And so, you know, it was really at a young age, I knew that I wanted to be in this field and to transform the lives of the people that, that I serve. Sandra, do you think that the kind of portrayal that we see in the media of Asian Americans, especially East Asians, is fixated on this notion of model minority? In my opinion, the concept itself is so problematic on so many levels, but because it just reduces the entire community to, to a monolith group, right? And it focuses disproportionately on people who have excelled 
academically and economically, and you know there is less focus on working class Asian Americans. How do you see that? And what is your take on how the concept of model minority uh, has hurt the community or not? Sure, you know the model minority myth is something that's very you know obviously personal to me as a Asian American, East Asian American. You know, I think the notion of model, the model minority is rooted in notion of white supremacy. I'm 33 now. And for my generation, we haven't lived through, you know, the era of, let's say, the LA riots uh, in Los Angeles or the Vincent Chin murder in, in Detroit. And so I think the kind of gravity of this moment where we're looking at how one one ethnic group is being scapegoated for an entire virus here in the U.S. It's really a call of action to a lot of us who haven't experienced kind of, I mean, we all experience racial microaggressions, you know, in our everyday lives, but to kind of see it happen in this broad form, I think it's a real true call to action. And for us to kind of elevate and progress the conversation of what it means to be Asian American here in the U.S. For me personally, uh, I think... We're kind of conditioned to think that we have the more, you know, our presence as Asian Americans are tolerated in circles of power if we're being silent and if we're suppressing, you know, our authentic voice, right? We're consistently being told you have to be more American. This is just the way things are. And for Asian Americans to really advocate for themselves, really be visible in government and in the media in civil society, I mean, we really have to make sure that we're, we understand how we came to the position where we are today, and also just make sure that we're, you know, advocating for racial solidarity, because without it, you know, we'll, we'll always be kind of reduced to this model minority myth, and we'll always kind of be expected to be invisible, silent, and, you know, on the sidelines, and, you know, we can't have that moving forward. So I was reading this article in the Washington Post by Andrew Yang, in which he talks about how the East Asian community should respond to racism that's targeted at them in the aftermath of COVID-19 to somehow amp up efforts to show your Americanness, right? That was the crux of what he was trying to say is that Asian Americans should just, you know, amp up efforts. They should wear more white, red, and blue, and they should volunteer more, which is such BS because he is, in essence, asking people who are being targeted to bear the burden and responsibility of fending it off. Yeah, that that was something that I reacted very strongly to as well. I mean, I, I do have to say, you know, I first learned of Andrew Yang, you know, several years ago through my work as an economic development officer. He led a very well-known uh, group called Venture for America, and I was really surprised to see this Asian American advocating for economic development policies in, in you know, in Rust Belt communities, and one of which I served in uh, about a year ago. And I think this whole concept of, you know, you have to sacrifice your own identity and your own voice to kind of appeal to the masses. That's what I, that's what I felt very strongly from the article that he wrote in the Washington Post. I mean, a lot of the people who represent the demographics today, I mean, we have to reconcile with our history of colonialism, slavery, and how, you know, our government and our country exploited new Americans um, to be where they are today. And, 
you know, we have to respect that, acknowledge that, and make sure we're modernizing our kind of outdated policies and institutions to make sure that we can all move forward collectively as a society. And his article kind of missed that point. So talking about being a young, progressive American, there is a lot of unrest amongst young American progressives right now, and they're upset with the way presidential election has panned out. Specifically, they are very frustrated with DNC in the way they seem to be protecting centrism, right? We see that there is so much focus on protecting the status quo and DNC is actively preventing the championing of the most progressive values. A, what advice would you give to young voters who may not want to come out in November and vote? And B, how do you make a difference given that there is so much pushback from the establishment? Because the way I see it, Sandra, I, I'm a Muslim American, so I don't have a choice other than to vote Democratic. But when I compare Republican Party and Democratic Party, I see Republican Party has moved to the far right and Democratic Party seems to be, it at least appears to be moderate Republican. Right. No, I, I agree with you completely. I think more than the advice I have for young voters, I think they should continue to advocate for what they believe in and what they stand for. I mean, my advice to the party is that you have to, you know, like you said, you know, as a minority American in the U.S., you really you really kind of put in a hard corner where you you can't align yourself with a party that visibly uh, demonizes your your identity uh, but also the Democratic Party has to earn the vote of every, you know, from every voter. I mean, from young voters, from minorities, from marginalized communities. I think, you know, they can't just assume that people are going to turn out for them and vote for them because the option is far worse. You know, and I think the fact that the party has failed to speak to young voters reflect the poor voter turnout year after year from that demographic. And, you know, you're right in that the Democratic Party has really become indistinguishable, you know, from the Republican Party, I think in large part because they share a lot of the same, you know, wealthy donors. And if it really wants to be the party of the people, then it has to adopt and champion progressive policies and not suppress them. Um, it's just not going to work moving forward. What did you do before your campaign? So prior to this campaign, I was the director of economic development in the city of Detroit. So, you know, the city, I've, as an economic development official, I've worked in a lot of communities across the countries that have been historically disinvested in. And so my job there was to work with the private sector, with local community groups, and with elected officials on building inclusive economic development priorities, programming, and strategy. But prior to that, I mean, I've worked in policy my whole life, and it's something that was really important to me growing up in Queens because I saw the disconnect between publicly elected officials here, the policies that they weren't advocating for, and the communities that they were supposed to represent. And you also worked with World Bank, right? So are, what are some of the discrepancies that you see in terms of U.S. policies versus policies that America commits to or promotes outside the U.S.? Yeah, part of, you know, when I was in school and uh, my undergraduate and graduate for my graduate degree, I was focused on becoming a foreign service officer with the U.S. State Department. 
because at the time I didn't see a lot of people that look like me uh, here in domestic politics. And it's common to see a lot of immigrant Americans that serve in the State Department because we understand the value of diplomacy and we also personally have ties to the diaspora. And so with my experience working uh, on different levels of government, including on the international for organizations like the United Nations and the World Bank, one of the discrepancies I noticed was that, you know, America really works hard to promote itself as the world's world's leader. I mean, they prescribe a lot of the international norms and the values that, you know, developing nations should should adapt for. So, I mean, you know, when I was working at the United Nations, the push for meeting the Millennium Development Goals was a big focus for them. But when you look at the politics here at home, we're we're failing to meet those same commitments. I mean, things like a single payer system, healthy access to healthy, clean water. You know, we're we're so busy trying to prescribe the international norms while we're neglecting the communities that we have here at home. Why do you think that is the case? I think a lot of it has to do with the way that, you know, we've normalized kind of the lack of progressive and the lack of progressive momentum for the communities that we have at home. I think a lot of, you know, incumbents um, lack that spirit or lack that commitment to making sure that it's a reality for the communities that they serve. And I think a large part of it has to do with corporate money and also, uh, you know, donations from organizations that you know, profiting off of the suffering of the many. Talking about donors now, you've been very clear on the fact that you're not receiving corporate PAC money, which is wonderful because then obviously you can champion interests of your constituents. But what is your game plan? Because I'm sure it is so difficult to raise funds for a campaign when you don't have these corporate donations. Yeah, it is. It is very incredibly difficult. A lot of people told me, don't bother running if you're not going to take corporate PAC money, especially, you know, as an Asian American woman, don't, don't bother. (laughs) And, but, you know, running without corporate PAC money was really important to this campaign because in our political system, corporate donations are so normalized. We don't understand how absurd it is, you know, banning corporate PAC money for, for all political candidates should be the new normal. You know, I'm really proud to be part of many the movement for many first-time candidates to to run and to you know run their campaign by this commitment. You know, corporations will always have powerful lobbyists to speak on their behalf to navigate Congress and um, the nation's highest legislative body. The average American, you know, does not. You know, they're too they're so busy trying to survive and make a living that you know. The commitment to not taking corporate PAC money was was an easy choice, even though we knew it was going to be extremely difficult. And to answer your question, you know, we're really relying on our relationships with, you know, on the ground organizations to get our message out. And we know that the power of digital is also going to be really important at this moment because there are lower barriers of entry there. And, you know, even though... You know, a lot of it seems like I'm a first time candidate. And what I'm finding is that a lot of the money that you're fundraising for is just... It's kind of, you know, making sure you can advertise yourself, you know, closer to the election. And so we, you know, we're really kind of looking at what resources we have, um, how to stretch, stretch what we have at the moment. But, you know, we've also made the decision to develop part of our campaign funds to provide some relief to the constituents that we you know, have here. So it's a new, I think it's a fairly new phenomenon, and we hope that more 
more and more first-time candidates and incumbent candidates make the commitment not to take corporate PAC money. I mean, not taking corporate PAC money, I, it's really just scratching the surface about getting big money and getting big influence out of our political system. But we really need to make that the new normal. And Bernie made it happen, right? Right. And, you know, it's, you know, Bernie Sanders who raised the most grassroots donations in American political history. It really says something that he wasn't able to, you know, make his way to win the party's nomination. You know, we, we need more progressives. I think Bernie really opened the, the floodgates for more younger Americans to run for office with progressive ideals. Uh, and so hopefully, you know, he, he'll be part of this movement. His his work um, and his candidacy for president will be part of the movement for more candidates to not take corporate PAC money and to run on a grassroots campaign. So Sandra, as you can see, I'm a progressive voter and I'm so excited that you're on my show because I have so many questions about progressive candidates and how they are approaching political landscape in America. I have another question for you, which is brought up a number of times. When people talk about progressives, they always bring up the electability issue, right? And many a time, especially in swing states, there are skeptics who would say that, you know, progressives who are running against centrist Democrats in primaries in swing states make it more difficult for Democrats to flip seats because in those states, constituents are not going to vote for a progressive candidate. What is your take on that? I think that's a really great question. And, you know, I've... I've been able to work in communities that, that are considered red or purple states. And, you know, I think we need progressives everywhere to, if the moderate, if, you know, the centrist Democratic Party isn't meeting the needs of the constituents, I mean, we, we need that progressive voice. We need that progressive momentum to take part in every part of the country. And so, you know, it's, it's really important that that continues to happen. The presumption is that centrist Democrats can flip seats and progressives can't. Do you think that's misplaced? You know, candidates for progressive ideals uh, should run for office wherever they are. I mean, we we need Democrats in Congress, but we also need you know progressive Democrats that are really going to advocate for and pass legislation for you know the communities that they serve. So let's switch gears a bit. Apart from campaigning. How are you spending your quarantine? How are you taking care of your mental health? Is there any specific routine that you have now? Because most of the time, all of us are home, right? And today is such wonderful weather. Like I look outside my window and it is beautiful. And when you're campaigning for office, really, you know, every day, every waking moment, you're thinking about your campaign and, you know, there's really no day off. But I mean, I do like to steal moments and I like to meditate. Um, I like to take pictures of my dog and send it to my friends and family. Uh, and I like to write in my journal. I I am a true INFJ for those that follow the Meyer-Briggs personality test. I'm very much an introvert and I like to do very kind of thoughtful, sentimental things, you know, so. That's so interesting. You said you had an introvert and then you're running for office. How does that happen? You know, I, a lot of my friends were surprised when I told them I was running for office. You know, I, I am an introvert. Um, I, I also felt like, you know, when I was looking at the, the election shaping up this year, that, you know, it was, it was, my, it was my calling to, to run for office at this time. 
When I kind of shared the story about why I wanted to run for office, you know, I specifically mentioned, you know, I'm a very private person. I don't think people would think of me as someone who, you know, decides to to run for elected office. But I really felt like at this moment it was important for me to run and to advocate for my community. Why this moment? You know, I saw the progressive candidates shaping up for the Democratic primary, and I saw that a lot of these conversations weren't happening in the district uh, that I grew up in or my family and friends are. And, you know, it was really important for me to make sure that a lot of what's being discussed on the federal level, things like single-payer, Medicare for all, housing reform, um, you know, running on no corporate PAC money, those conversations happen in communities that are, you know, many times kind of removed from the political process, right? Because a lot of people are just trying to survive and, you know, get by. Sandra, you are also among very few congressional candidates who've openly expressed your support and advocacy for undocumented immigrants, right, as part of your platform. And it's honestly very refreshing to see that you are supporting undocumented immigrants who basically get the brunt of things like this pandemic, right? And they don't even qualify for federal assistance. And unfortunately, ICE raids are still happening. In your opinion, what more needs to happen on, say, legislative level to advocate for undocumented immigrants? And why haven't we been able to do that so far? Uh, yeah, you know, ad- making sure that that we're very clear about our support for undocumented Americans was really important to, to this campaign because you know, Queens has one of the largest undocumented populations in this country. And when you grow up here, a lot of people don't even know that they're undocumented until they're 18, you know, when they're applying for aid for college or for other um, programs. And so, you know, this aid, especially because of the population that we represent, it, it needs to be unapologetic with its advocacy for this population. And so, you know, on the policy level, I think it The last time that we offered a permanent pathway to citizenship for the undocumented members of our community, who you you are absolutely right, they bear the brunt of, you know, this pandemic when they're serving, a lot of them are serving on the front lines. Uh, You know, they, we need to make sure that we we intersect and acknowledge and uh, implement their needs as part of every legislation that we advocate for and introduce in Congress, because you know, for example, having a single-payer Medicare for all system, you know, and we hear a lot of the candidates or, you know, elected officials who advocate for it, mostly in other parts of the country. But, you know, sometimes they don't publicly um, or they don't visibly advocate or make sure that the undocumented population is is mentioned as part of who would be covered under this new system. And so, you know, we can't tiptoe around the issue. We need to make sure that we're very visible and we're very vocal about making sure undocumented Americans, you know, they're they're part of our community. We'll advocate for them as part of, you know, our citizens and our, our permanent residents because we can't have anything less than that. And talking about that, we also have to realize that undocumented Americans, as you said, are a large group and they are a diverse group. There is disproportionate focus on DACA recipients. But then there are other undocumented Americans as well who are not talked about as much and in a way are sidelined. Do you agree? Uh, That they're sidelined? Yeah, I mean, the last time we offered, this country offered a pathway to citizenship was, I was only probably a year or two old. And, you know, the DACA program, you know, provides assistance to certain, certain segment of the population, but it really leaves out 
a large majority. And so, you know, I think it's time that it's almost been three decades since we've had comprehensive immigration reform that um, provides a pathway to citizenship for the undocumented members of our community. And, you know, it's really it's really time that we Congress show some political courage and take that on as as a priority in the, you know, in the upcoming session. So before we end the interview, I'm going to ask you a question which may be a little controversial, but I want to get your take on it. Now that Joe Biden is the presumptive Democratic nominee, we have to talk about those sexual assault allegations. For the very first time, Joe Biden has publicly denied sexually assaulting a former Senate aide in 1993. The race for 2020 tonight and the accusation against Joe Biden. A woman coming forward claiming he sexually assaulted her while she was working as an aide in his Senate office in 1993. Would you please go on the record with the American people? Did you sexually assault Tara Reid? No, it is not true. I'm saying unequivocally, it never, never happened. And it didn't. It never happened. What are your thoughts on Tara Reid's allegations? And are you satisfied with Joe Biden's response to those allegations? And how do you see DNC has approached this issue? Tara Reid you know, must have an opportunity to be heard. It's almost as if the, the Me Too movement never happened. The way that the party is, you know, not acknowledging her story and her experience. And it's really hard for sexual assault survivors to come forward because at times like this, you know, uh, incidents like this make it seem like the cost of coming out publicly with your experience can be greater. And, you know, I think a lot of sexual assault survivors feel like they are being accused of politicizing their trauma when it's it's the people who respond to it or the lack of response to it. It feels like it, it's very politicized and make them feel re-victimized in a way. If Joe Biden wants to be a credible candidate, he, he really has to respond to this in a meaningful way. Or it really kind of regresses the whole Me Too movement and how the public really came out in full force for Dr. Jill Ford. Uh, and I also think that, you know, it's it's not just women um, who are sexual assault survivors in this country. It's also men. Um, it's also transgender and members of the transgender community. And I think, you know, all of this is, you know, it's all of the, all of this is really important if we want to move this country forward and if the party wants to have credibility with with its public come come November. And it boils down to the same thing that we were talking about earlier as to how does Democratic Party distinguish itself. For me, as a progressive voter and a constituent, I don't see much difference between Republicans and Democrats. Now, people may say, you know, this is bullshit, this is not true. But honestly, I feel like if I had an option, a third option, I would probably not be voting for Democratic candidate this year. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's, I think it's hard for me, you know, I've worked for elected officials my whole career, including, you know, Democrats in New York. And, you know, as I've gotten older, it's it's really become difficult to distinguish between the two parties. It's almost as if they're monolithic, they're the same. And, you know, the Democratic Party really needs to show some political courage and make sure that they want to be the party of the people that they want to represent. Exactly. But I am excited that we have young progressives like yourself who are, you know, running for office and they are doing so much more. So there is hope. Hopefully things will change and we will have more progressives and we will have more progressive policies 
And that will hopefully change the way we see Democratic Party now. Yeah, I hope so, too. I hope that, you know, there's when I was growing up in New York City, I think it was really in early 2000, we saw more and more Asian Americans serve in all levels of government. But I mean, since then, it's hard to see any new young candidates come up and run for office to represent their community. So, you know, this I hope that this campaign uh, allows other young progressives in the district to stand up and to know that, you know, they can they can also speak up for their community without feeling like, you know, their voice is being suppressed by <laughs> by the centrists. So it is it's, it's really I think, you know, I've. One of the best parts of running for office is just to hear from young people um, who say, oh, you know, it's, you know, who just want to have a conversation with me about who I am and why I'm running. And, you know, this, every conversation I have and every story that they share with me, it really, you know, running for office is tough, but, you know, being able to have that exchange and to know that, you know, this, you know, grassroots campaign is, it's catching the attention of, you know, people who would normally not be involved it's it's really been a source of great uh, comfort and you know uh, confidence for me so Sandra in the end if you were to describe America uh, how would you do that no I think America America is our home and since this is a podcast for immigrants it's it's a home for immigrants and every every person should feel like they have a place here and you know I'd like to provide a quote by by a woman that that's really inspired me and my run for office, who is the legendary activist Gracie Boggs, that, you know, we are not subversives. We're struggling to change our country because we love it. Yeah, that's beautiful. Sandra, where can people find information about your campaign if they want to donate? Is there a website they can go to? Yeah, uh, we want to share our campaign website with, with your listeners, um, www.sandrachoy2020.com. We also try to be active on social media as well. So we're on all the um, social media platforms. And if they are interested in donating, our campaign website has a link to our donation box. And we'll put all those links once we release your episode. Thank you so much for coming on the show and best of luck. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure to be able to share um, our campaign with your listeners. As always, thank you so much for listening to Sandra Choi's episode. If you want more information about her campaign or if you want to support her campaign, you can check out her website. We will be posting links to her website and her social media on our platform. So you can check it out there as well. And by the way, I wanted to give a shout out to everyone who participated in our recent giveaway. Thank you so much for writing reviews for subscribing to the podcast. You are the best and we are working on sharing more giveaways with you and we will be posting about that on our social media soon. You can also visit our website to get latest information about our blog, our episodes, our projects that Immigrantly is working on and you can even write a review and subscribe to our podcast on all major platforms. And I hope you guys come back next week for another incredible interview. In the meantime, stay safe and distant. 